For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. As the reading science movement continues to grow, even during this unprecedented time, it's so important to stay focused on what it takes to develop confident and capable readers. As we've learned, change can happen fast. That makes it even more important to stay connected and learn from each other. The more we learn and listen, the more prepared we'll be to lead. Together, let's voice challenges and take action. Sonia Cabell, Assistant Professor in the College of Education at Florida State University, joins us on today's episode as we talk about her work in the critical role of language and its role in comprehension. While she knows that foundational skills are important, essential in fact, to students' reading development, she talks about how language comprehension can get overlooked in practice, especially in the early grades. She believes that learning to read and reading to learn are a false dichotomy. What a great episode to build your knowledge on the importance of background knowledge. Enjoy. Sonia, welcome to today's episode. So excited to have you on today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So as you know, we always spend the first little bit here chatting about who you are and how you ended up in this reading science space. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, it starts back from when I was a 12-year-old girl. I was always interested in being a teacher. Uh, My parents immigrated from Pakistan in the 70s um, to the United States, and they really placed a great value on education. And I think my mom had a very strong orientation toward teaching us and particularly teaching us how to read. Mm -hmm. Um, I see myself, you know, in her with my five-year-old now, you know, Um, she would do some of the behaviors naturally that we now have research about. Like she would... um, going to the library would be a really fun thing where we could pick out whatever books that, you know, I wanted. And, um, and when reading aloud, she would regularly point to the print. And I, I remember being able to read before I entered school. So that was always something that was really important to me. Hmm. So always wanted to be a teacher. (laughs) Yeah, I always did. Well, before I I have to confess that before I was 12, I wanted to be an astronaut. Oh. (laughs) But then I learned that you couldn't be, you had to be like 35 and have perfect vision to be an astronaut. And I thought, you know, I can't do that. So so teaching was it for me. And, you know, I I had a great undergraduate experience at Smith College in the 90s. and uh, they had a really terrific child development and education program. Um, but interestingly, I did my student teaching at a really um, highly regarded school there, uh, but they used the whole language approach to teaching reading. So that was my initial training. Um, and then I, uh, you know, fast forward a few years, I taught second grade uh, for a few years in Oklahoma, and I received my master's degree in reading education. Um, And then I was a reading coach during the Reading First era in the early 2000s in both Oklahoma and Virginia. Um, And I, you know, I always valued reading because it plays such a critical role in our lives and can positively or negatively affect our lives. So Mm -hmm. I always thought that that was the most important thing. Hmm. And now you're a teacher of teachers and, uh, you know, 
broadly publishing reach research, which is really exciting. Right. And it was during my reading coaching days that I began to see that teacher knowledge was really variable about how reading develops and how to teach reading. Um, and that was interesting to me, like certain teachers knew a lot more about teaching reading than other teachers. And, um, and I kind of stumbled upon the opportunity to get my PhD uh, at the University of Virginia. My husband had just gotten out of the army and we were moving from Oklahoma to Virginia to start a new chapter in our lives. And we just identified Charlottesville as a town we wanted to live in. So when we were there, I saw, I was reading the newspaper and I saw Marcia Inverniz's name in the paper. And she was, is one of the authors of Words Their Way, which I had used in my second grade classroom like every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got excited and I told my husband and I said, real researchers are at UVA. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was back when I really wanted everybody's autographs in my book books, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I ever got hers. Um, but I met her and the rest was history and she became my program advisor. Um, and when I started my doctoral program, it was in 2005. Uh, she said it would change the way I thought and it would change my life. And she was absolutely right. You know, I began to see how some of what I practiced in classrooms didn't actually have an evidence base. And even though certain programs or approaches had like glossy materials or well-written professional books about them, there was limited evidence that they actually worked to improve children's reading. So, um, that was that was troubling, and and as now as I teach doctoral students, I see that regularly that their world is kind of blown in the first few months of school, and they realize what do we really have evidence on? Hmm. Um, and then That's- I had the, yeah I had the opportunity to work with um, Dr. Laura Justice, who served as my dissertation advisor, and her work she's at the Ohio State University now, and her work is in early childhood uh, literacy and. I fell in love with the preschool space Um, and the prevention of reading difficulties makes so much sense to me that if we can shore up the skills that serve as precursors to reading um, during the preschool years, we can prevent later reading difficulties to some degree. And to quote Joe Torgerson, the founder of the Florida Center for Reading Research, where I work now, we want to catch them before they fall. Mm. Well, that... That explains a lot about sort of the development of your work from, you know, early on as a whole language learning to teach to to now actually part of um, the actually uh, discourse uh, about the science of reading. Yeah. And one of those critical skills, you know, is around language. And that was, you know, I began to study language um, and think about the role it plays in both decoding and comprehension, but it plays a particularly powerful role in comprehension and in boosting children's language skills early in life. And particularly those academic language skills that lend themselves to learning the academic language, the register of books Mm -hmm. and school, um, we might be able to prevent later reading comprehension difficulties. Hmm. Um, And at the time I was working on language interventions and preschool or language approaches in preschool to help improve the language learning environment. Um, and the work overall found that language skills were really hard to change. It was really hard to both um, see a change, a meaningful change in how teachers were talking with children. And it was really hard to see language skills shift for children in ways that would affect their later reading comprehension. And I remember being... Um, in a symposium at uh, a research conference. And there were several groups, and I was including um, my work with Laura Laura Justice being presented there. And uh, we were just presenting findings for language, um, you know, instructional studies in preschool that didn't have great findings. I felt like it was just lackluster findings. There were some changes in teachers and children, but not the kind of the generalized changes in language that you want to see. And I remember Catherine Snow of Harvard University being our discussant. And she said something like, what if we gave teachers and children something to talk about? Mm. And that led me down a path of trying to understand instructional contexts that may facilitate richer and more complex language more naturally. Wow. 
That's a, that's, that's a powerful question, right? And mm-hmm. um, I wonder if she, and she, I wonder, does she know now that that had such an impact on the work that you're doing? I don't even think she knows who I am, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I would love for her to know who I was. But, um, uh, but like, I, I uh, hope to be able to tell her that what a difference that that made. Um, and what a, a study that I did after that time um, I looked at different um, cont- contexts in which teachers were modeling language and actually found that the science um, context um, may be a unique facilitative context to support teachers in providing a richer language learning environment for preschoolers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, again, this made me think about approaches that combine content knowledge and language in reading instruction in the early grades. Hmm, interesting. And for our listeners, I think because this is the Science of Reading podcast and we're trying to bring these things together, just a reminder that we're, t- you know, the framework we're talking around here is the simple view of reading, meaning that uh, reading proficiency or reading comprehension is really a product of language comprehension and word recognition. And you sort of sit in this language comprehension space. Can you just give us a you know, just a, a primer on what is language comprehension and what are we talking about generally when we use that term? Right. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the attention is naturally paid to foundational skills and phonics instruction and reading in the early grades and K1 and 2. And, you know, and rightfully so, you know, gener- people generally see the early years as a time to learn to read. And we have a lot of compelling evidence in the science of reading about the importance of systematic and explicit phonics instruction. Right. Um, and there's little serious disagreement among scientists um, about that. Um, but I do think that the language comprehension side sometimes gets overlooked, at least in practice, in the early grades. Because sometimes people think of learning to read, they'll first learn to read and later they'll read to learn. But that presents a false dichotomy. I think it's a, actually, I think it is an um, um, an erroneous or mistaken reading of Jean Charles, of what she was saying, um, that actually they can be reading to learn all along the way or listening to learn all yeah. along the way. Um, and, uh, and so the, the language comprehension side um, includes the, you know, when I think about contributors to language comprehension, we generally think about um, things like vocabulary and syntactical knowledge, um, all of the things that are precursors to um, listening comprehension and later reading comprehension in terms of the language. Um, but one of the things that we don't give a lot of attention to is the idea that knowledge is also a contributor to language comprehension. In, in particular, um, the background knowledge um, that children bring to a text. And when we're talking about that, and I know we'll dive in a little bit deeper to this idea of, you know, knowledge building, but people in classrooms all the time, I see teachers doing it all the time, they're trying to activate prior knowledge. Right. What's the difference then between this activation of prior knowledge and this background knowledge right. that you're talking about? Right. So. In the early 2000s, um, after the National Reading Panel report, one of the findings from that, that one of the things that people grabbed onto was the idea that you should activate background knowledge or activate prior knowledge, okay? And prior knowledge is the knowledge that someone brings with them, right? We're told to activate this. Um, I, I saw, uh, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to attribute things to particular people when um, possible when it, when when relevant. So I saw Susan Newman talking about this, and she said something that stuck with me. And it was, "How can you activate knowledge if there isn't any knowledge to activate?" So if someone doesn't have the prior knowledge, you could be activating all you want, and nothing is getting activated. Right. So background knowledge, it, you know, is what you need to be able to understand the given text, and you may or may not have it already. And so in my work, I investigate whether actively building background knowledge alongside literacy instruction matters for children's literacy learning more than traditional approaches. And in traditional approaches, those, those things are usually um, uh, separate. 
Yeah, that's an important distinction. Um, and, and as it relates to language comprehension, so in the general sense, when we're talking about language comprehension, we're talking about things that kids do and encounter before they even come to school. It's right the back and forth conversations and ideas and concepts and vocabulary they're using in their day-to-day conversations. Is that right? Right. And that um, that's why I just, you know, I love that preschool space so much because you can't, you can't um, disregard all of that language that grows up in that preschool in during the preschool years for children. Um, you know, and the being a conversationally responsive partner with children and helping them build those language skills. And where you see a lot of this research is really in the book reading literature. Um, and in the book reading literature, both in the preschool space, the reason I reference the preschool space a lot right now is not only my, my work largely situates there, um, but also a lot of the book reading work and conversational responsiveness work, all of this was done in preschools, among preschoolers mm-hmm. before the age of five. And so what we've learned from some of the book reading literature is that it's those conversations before, during, and after the book reading experience that matters to children's learning. Yes, the book matters, but also those conversations matter to children's language learning. Um, and I think book reading serves as one of those facilitative contexts for teachers to engage children in more academic language uh, and and grow their academic language skills. Yeah, and maybe let's talk just really quickly, and then we're going to get on to um, to a specific article that you have. But let's talk a little bit about what's the difference between those kinds of conversations that are happening in the home or in the day-to-day and conversations that are based on academic content. Why is that important that they have those academic interactions? Right. Um, We naturally learn to speak with interactions that happen with adults, everyday, daily, incremental language. That's how we learn our spoken language. But we don't learn how to read naturally. Okay, so we need the um, interactions with both texts and the language of uh, texts, language of books. The language of books is actually quite different in some respect from everyday spoken language. So if someone were to analyze the conversation we're having today and think about the number of rare words or sophisticated vocabulary that we use, um, it's probably a lot less in our conversation (laughs) than it would be in in a book you would read aloud to a child. And that's because the written written language and spoken language are quite different. And so I think of academic language um, as a bridge um, between the casual register. Um, The academic language skills are the bridge between the casual register of language and the more formal language of schooling. That makes so much sense because I'm sure my sentence construction right now isn't the same as what it would be as if I was writing or rewriting or revising. <laughs> Absolutely. So not only your vocabulary is impacted, right? Your syntax is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it's really exciting to me that uh, we'll talk a little bit about ILA right now. ILA put out a special issue of their reading research quarterly called The Science of Reading. Um, and so you actually have an article in that issue. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, um, uh, I have a couple of articles in the issue. Um, (laughs) one of which we'll talk, uh, we'll talk more deeply about, but, um, the reason I bring up the other article, um, is that, uh, it, it was led by Yaakov Petcher and it involved all of my colleagues at the Florida Center for Reading Research, um, and we define the science of reading in that article. And so I want, that's why I wanted to bring it up. That's amazing. And I want to think about, um, you know, what constitutes evidence in the science of reading. You know, um, th- so we talk about the science of reading as a phrase representing the accumulated knowledge about reading, reading development, and best practices for reading instruction obtained by the use of the scientific method. And my research 
you know, takes a what works approach to teaching and learning. Um, I conduct randomized control trials, which are well-designed experiments that test the efficacy of a particular curriculum or approach. Um, you know, uh, that is one type of rigorous uh, research design that would go into the science of reading or the accumulated knowledge about reading. And when we think about randomized control trials, um, we want efficacy trials to be done for vaccinations, for example. That's a very relevant topic currently. <laughs> very relevant. <laughs> and shouldn't, so shouldn't we also want them to be done to understand whether certain approaches or curricula work to improve children's reading skills? Um, and so in that paper, we, we talk about levels of evidence, what we know about what's compelling evidence, what we know about what is... Um, what lacks compelling evidence, what is promising evidence. Um, and the, the, the other paper that I wrote in this, that issue that I um, was the first author and uh, Dr. Heijin Huang at Florida State University was my co-author. Um, we talk about an area of research that is promising but not yet compelling. So the research in this area has not yet accumulated to the point uh, of being... Um, uh, being conclusively compelling, um, but and and that that is uh, the integ integrating knowledge building into English language arts or content rich English language arts approaches. Great. Can I stop you just there and and I just want to talk a little bit because we've we've heard that you know the science of reading. There's decades of research. This idea of accumulated knowledge. Uh, but when we're talking about you know, different areas for, for this development, even based on the simple view of reading, what you're saying then is that there are some areas where the evidence has been accumulating much more, and maybe we've even gone beyond promising evidence, but there's other areas that are just developing. I wonder how, how we think about that or help teachers to think about that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, that definitely, when you think about the decoding um, part of the equation, we know a lot more there. And we have a lot more compelling evidence on not only on how it develops, but how we should be teaching it. Does that mean we know everything? No. I have colleagues who are, you know, working on the cutting edge of, of that space. Hmm. Um, we, we know a lot less about language comprehension and how to improve language comprehension. So this while we do have some compelling evidence around strategy instruction, comprehension strategy instruction, um, we, there's a lot that we need to learn, and, and there's a lot of promising evidence in this area. Hmm. And so that's where your, your article called Building Content Knowledge to Boost Comprehension in the Primary Gate Grades sits within that promising evidence section. Right. Exactly. And... and um, you know, I think about it as, and the reason it's promising and not yet compelling, like I said earlier, is because there are much fewer studies. It just has not, uh, the research has not been as well developed. Now, there has been a lot of research around understanding how knowledge relates to reading. So when we think about, so in the science of reading, remember, we're talking about not only how reading develops but also how you instruct. So when we talk about how reading develops, um, we know that things like um, the knowledge that a reader brings to the text is a determinant of whether they'll understand that text. Um, and if nobody argues that your background knowledge or the knowledge that you have about a particular topic you're reading about uh, matters for your reading comprehension, I think um, in most, if not every theory of, of, of reading comprehension implicates knowledge. Um, but it's interesting that that hasn't necessarily been translated into all of our instructional approaches. Hmm. And why do you think that is? Well, I think the, unfortunately, the subject areas in school have largely been siloed. So, um, you know, I, um, I saw firsthand during the reading, this probably happened long before, you know, um, someone who knows the history of, of all of, of, the, of reading education in the United States better than I do would probably have a more historical answer for you. Um, I'll, I'll, let me give you a contemporary answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the early 2000s, when the National Reading Panel Report came out, um, the 
it, there was a, an emphasis placed on reading and there was during reading first and no child left behind, there was a lengthening of the reading block and the reading block in some cases became two and a half hours, you know, long. And that tended to push out uh, other areas, you know, uh, you can't lengthen one area and not shorten another. Sure. But, but unfortunately, reading instruction has been largely, I would say, um, I'm not sure the right word to use here, but maybe largely agnostic to the idea of building knowledge. Yes, there are texts within reading instruction. For example, there are texts that teachers read aloud to children, and there might be themes but they tend to hop around in popular uh, curricula, um, English language arts curricula, rather than building uh, sets, building knowledge, science and social studies knowledge. Um, what I'm finding to even more troubling is in the you know in the last few years and talking with large districts and what actual practice is on the ground is that children get very little science and social studies instruction um, in their day. Sometimes they get 30 minutes every other day, or in some places, half the year is devoted to science and half to uh, social studies. And this, you know, in kindergarten, you might not even, and this, you know, I'm talking about the early grades here. And in kindergarten, you may not even have science and social studies going on very systematically. And when it does, sometimes I've also seen it that the teacher's, don't necessarily use materials that are systematically building knowledge. Um, but, um, and, and so, you know, I'm not an expert on science instruction or social studies instruction. My interest in this is really from a reading perspective. And when I think about integrating content rich English, when I think about content rich English language arts, I think about how can we integrate um, science and social studies into the language arts in ways that make sense. But these were never supposed to replace science and social studies instruction. So the developers of curricula, such as core knowledge language arts, right? The developers didn't mean for that to replace science and social studies instruction. So in, when I talk about content-rich ELA instruction, I'm not talking about necessarily about instruction that would replace science and social studies, but ideally serve as a complement to what's going on in science and social studies. Great. Well, let's talk um, just a little bit about what the research says about that integration then. Why, you know, and why is it important and, you know, what does it look like in the classroom? Right. My colleague, Heijin Huang, um, as well as uh, our colleague, Rachel Joyner at Florida State University, um, and this was really Heijin's uh, led the way on this. We, we conducted a, um, some meta-analyses to see what is the research in integrating um, content area instruction and literacy instruction on both vocabulary and comprehension. And one of the things we were really surprised by is just how few studies have done this um, and measured measured vocabulary or comprehension as outcomes. And we just looked at K-5 settings, so Mm -hmm. in the elementary settings, and out of thousands of studies that we initially um, hit upon with our initial search, we narrowed down to 31 studies that fit the criteria um, of, that were either experiments or quasi-experiments. So both of these can show a, a causal inference. You can make a causal inference or see what works um, in these approaches. And, um, and not, not, um, I would say most of these are approaches and not necessarily curricula that um, are commercially available. Um, Got it. Okay. And uh, when we meta-analyzed uh, these, the, the corpus, um, we found that combining knowledge building and literacy approaches, either in English language arts or in, or gen- more generally, this was more general than that. Um, so it could have been an intervention that combined it in the social studies or science instruction involved mm-hmm. li- literacy we did find that it had a positive impact on both vocabulary and comprehension outcomes for elementary age students. And the reason why this is important, I just want to point out why this is, why this finding matters. This, the, the counterfactual in these, in, in these studies, meaning the group that these, the treatment was compared to, um, we're, we're doing traditional instruction. 
So what was business as usual? So it wasn't that they were without instruction. It was just business as usual, traditional instruction that was generally separate. So we found this positive impact when it was when these things were integrated, and um, it was significant for both vocabulary and comprehension. Now, when we zoom into just the studies that are on um, content-rich ELA approaches that are done in the English language arts space, um, we only had nine studies that met mm. the criteria, which is really disheartening. Yeah, this is the the why why it's promising and it's continued to accumulate, right? Right. There's only nine. Yeah. Right, but of those, there were some that um, changed that impacted children's standardized. Um, and by standardized, I mean on a standardized test, um, on for, for for comprehension. So mm-hmm. that is very interesting. Um, and in terms of language. Um, the the language the reason why again the reason why this is significant is because when you look at the instructional approaches where we've only tried to improve language by itself yeah they're not they don't seem as robust as this literature now this is a growing like a small but growing literature so I don't want to say that too emphatically but sure. there is definitely promise here in integrating English language arts instruction and content rich instruction. Um, and, and that ma- it makes a lot of theoretical sense. Yeah. Because when children, some of the, these approaches included things like using coherent text sets. So children would be learning about not building knowledge and they would hear words repeated over and over again in different contexts. They would begin to, you know, you could see that they would, their understanding of vocabulary would deepen. Mm-hmm. And you could see, and vocabulary, really, some people talk about vocabulary as being just the tip of the iceberg of someone's knowledge more generally. Hmm. So if vocabulary, the the tip of the iceberg, that idiom is used, like the tip is what we can see, what we can measure, and we tend to measure vocabulary. But really, you know, if we could see the whole picture of knowledge, some people will argue that you are indexing their knowledge. So that's an that that's an important uh, consideration to keep in mind. Very interesting. So all, so all of this sort of led you to conducting a study of your own right. to look at this this idea of content rich ELA programs and right. what happens. Right. So um, I um, conducted a randomized control trial of core knowledge language arts, the knowledge strand, um, and in CKLA, I'm going to call it CKLA. For short, CKLA has both a knowledge and a skill strand that in K2 are decouplable. So um, knowledge can be taught um, and then you can use a, a different phonics approach or different foundational skills approach or curriculum. So we were just testing the knowledge strand. So I want to say the reason that's important is because all of what we were interested in is thinking about the language, um, changes in language that children would have. So changes in vocabulary and listening comprehension and changes in knowledge that children would have as a result of the curriculum. And we looked in kindergarten and first grade settings. So what we've reported on in our, what we're able to report on so far is there are preliminary findings in the kindergarten space. Now, a little bit more about um, this, before I delve into findings, I want to just share just a little bit more about our study. It was funded by the Institute of Education Sciences, which is the research arm of the U.S. Department of Education. Um, And as as you know, we were independent from Amplify. I do know. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, we we took care, very careful pains to to only purchase materials from Amplify uh, and not um, get PD from Amplify. So Amplify uh, allowed us to... um, work with Core Knowledge Foundation directly on providing the PD for teachers for the study. Um, And we also then had a firewall between the Core Knowledge Foundation and the uh, um, evaluation portion of our study. And then we had like another firewall between our Florida State University team and 
the team that was conducting the uh, main analyses for the study. So I have to say that my collaborators in the study are James Kim from Harvard University is a co-investigator and Tom White from University of Virginia. So we, you know, we wanted to maintain, have a, a level of rigor that we could say, not, so not only am, am I not a developer of the curriculum, um, but also, so I don't really have a horse in the race. Uh, for whether this curriculum works. What I became interested in is um, when I got introduced to to CKLA, it was around 2012. It was um, when um, it really was the only approach in the space, a commercial approach that was combining um, content knowledge building with uh, English language arts instruction. And what strikes me about CKLA as unique from other uh, approaches is that it um, tries to build the background knowledge for children systematically over time. And so within a grade level, knowledge builds um, and, uh, you know, across grade levels, that knowledge continues to to build. Um, So it's both coherent within a grade level and then across grade levels. And so that uh, they were doing something different than, than what I had been seeing. So I became interested in studying this. Hmm. And um, at the same time, what was happening in the country was that uh, since the Common Core State Standards in 2010, there was this push toward building knowledge that was occurring. And this push happened in English language arts. Um, and so content, so English language arts became a place where a space where curriculum developers were creating content rich English language arts curricula. And there were districts that were uptaking these curricula and widely using these curricula. And also there were districts that were creating their own curricula that were like this. And so this became something worthy of study because it was so widely used. Right. And it was even outlined in Appendix A, right, of the Common Core State Standards of how you can use read-aloud text in the early grades to actually bring that background knowledge to students and develop it coherently. Right. And that's what CKLA uh, primarily uses as a primary vehicle um, for building that background knowledge um, through um, interactive read-alouds. So again, the talking, the conversations that occur before, during, after the read-aloud experience um, and some of that conversation before the read aloud experience includes, um, you know, reminding children of where, you know, the knowledge that they've already learned and applying that new knowledge to uh, the text that's about to be read. Um, and, invo- and it also involves coherent text sets then that are text sets that are related within given units of study. Um, so those pieces, so it's the, those and what I want to say just one caveat here or a couple of caveats. One is, <laughs> this is just one way to think about combi- integrating knowledge right. and language or yep. knowledge and literacy, okay? Um, and, and it is not the only way. So, and, and, you know, and some would argue that ideally you want this integration to occur across your day, not just in English language arts programs. So I want to put that caveat sure. out there. Um, the second one is, and, and that's in keeping with the, the developers design of these curricula as well. They, they're not intended to replace um, the science or social studies and meet those science, the science and social studies standards as well. Um, the second one um, is that this doesn't, you know, by studying curricula like this, it doesn't imply that comprehension strategy instruction is not important. We do have research showing that comprehension strategy instruction can matter. Um, and so I view it as a both and, Knowledge is needed and strategies instruction can be powerful. And so we have some compelling evidence on that. So, um, so I just wanted to say, put those out there before sharing the results. Yeah, that's great. We appreciate that because <laughs> we actually know that from National Reading Panel too, right? That right. Uh, comprehension strategies definitely have their place, but so does knowledge building in terms of helping students um, build vocabulary and, like you said, background knowledge. Um, so tell us a little bit about the study then. Yeah. So in the study, we were in two different urban districts, large urban districts, um, and we provided professional development to teachers um, in, kinder, in the kindergarten year. 
Um, the implementation occurred really during the second half of the kindergarten year. Um, and this was a randomized control trial. So schools were randomized to either receiving the treatment, which was core knowledge, language arts, knowledge strand, or engaging in their business as usual practices. Okay. And um, what, uh, so after implementation for, and we monitored implementation and we largely found that teachers implemented the curriculum as it was designed. Um, and our findings are very interesting to me because it, and this is designed to have, to be a longitudinal study with multiple years of intervention, but I'm just talking about the kindergarten year findings. Okay. Um, the findings are interesting because, um, you know, in most studies uh, that are vocabulary studies, for example, um, it's no great surprise or shocker that children learn the words you teach them, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and so in that way, we, we, we found that. We found that children learn the words that we taught them, okay? We also found that children learn the knowledge we taught them. <laughs> That's great too. <laughs> right. Those are important findings. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of those findings because you want without those being the case, something would be really wrong. Right. Okay. But, um, but where you want to also get purchase, where is in moving generalized knowledge of language and comprehension, uh, language. Um, for, in our study, we did vocabulary, listening, comprehension, and um, knowledge. Okay. And most vocabulary interventions do not move the needle on a standardized measure like the PPBT, for example. So or, let me say that again. Most vocabulary interventions don't move the needle on more generalized vocabulary development. Right. Okay. There's a few that have. Um, and some of the integrated approaches have done that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, what we found was that there was a difference, a significant difference in expressive vocabulary. So the Woodcock-Johnson um, picture vocabulary test. And we also found a significant difference in um, science knowledge on the Woodcock-Johnson science test. So why should people be excited about that finding? Um, well, it is very, it is rare. <laughs> so I, I, I actually... Um, I'm a bit surprised by the finding myself as a researcher in this space. I thought we wouldn't find um, standardized findings on generalized uh, um, assessments like that until at least after the, the first grade year. Um, but the fact that we see that in kindergarten after one semester of instruction is, uh, is quite remarkable. Hmm. Um, there were, you know, uh, to be fair, we didn't find it across all of our generalized measures. And the effect sizes were very small. Um, but it, if you know education research, you know that um, small effect sizes are part of the what happens, right? We don't right. see huge effect sizes um, and things that are distal measures like this. Um, so it, it's very, um, there, there's some promise here. And um, that and to put it into context, um, when you think about large-scale randomized control trials in kindergarten across, um, across all outcomes, they have an average effect size of non-significant effect size of 0 0.01. Um, and um, on language outcomes specifically, um, 0 0.01 across grades. Um, and so our small effect sizes of, of 0 0.06 and 0 0.12 approximately are... Um, are quite remarkable. Hmm. Um, so I, you know, um, so it, it, it makes me excited about the potential for this approach, uh, a content rich English language arts approach in build in building children's language and knowledge. That's exciting. And what does that mean for sort of next steps, um, for the study itself? Right. Well, our study ran right into COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so we do have, <laughs> so last year, children were in first grade. Yeah. Um, our testing window opened up at the same time COVID hit and school ended. Oh, um, so disappointing. Yeah, so we don't have first grade, although children received the intervention 
mm-hmm. um, in one of the districts in kindergarten and first grade. We don't have the um, we don't have child level data, um, meaning we don't know um, we don't have the vocabulary, listening comprehension, and um, uh, knowledge data that we were hoping to obtain. Now we are working with school districts to see if we can get related data as children grow mm-hmm. um, and develop. And what would be really interesting is if we saw an effect of, um, of kindergarten, first grade instruction on, you know, second or third grade reading. Yeah. Um, so we're hoping to be able to, to gauge that. Although with COVID, you never, you don't know. We do, what's in, what I'm getting ready to dive into is um, research on teachers and how teachers, up to, uh, like, I, I, like I said earlier, teachers generally um, showed fidelity or to the program or they, they adhered to the program, but there were differences and we want to explore those differences. Um, in first grade, they also received um, additional supports and we want to explore those. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have survey data on teachers. We have um, video of their instruction. We have... Um, um, you know, we know the book, the books that they were reading, they reported on the books that they were reading in general. So we'd have a lot of rich information about implementation that we want to really dive into. Yeah. Um, and so that's where, where we're headed. Um, we're, we're finalizing our results in the kindergarten space. Like I said, what we reported are preliminary results and we're working on finalizing those results and getting those published in a peer reviewed journal. Um, and, uh, then we will be uh, turning our attention to, um, teachers. And one of the interesting questions to me is whether teachers having, having, after having used the curriculum for um, a semester in kindergarten, did that, did any of the things that the curriculum was kind of teaching them to do on a daily basis, did that transfer to a novel reading of a book that wasn't CKLA, Ah, a book of their choice? It's like, what book did they even choose? What did, Mm -hmm. what was the talk like the extra textual talk like before, during and after reading, what vocabulary words did they teach? How did they teach them? Those kinds of things. So that's the kind of the direction we're looking at next. That sounds exciting. <laughs> we're excited about it. Um, so I think one uh, thing that would be super helpful for our listeners and relevant is, so what kind of application might even this study that you've done, even though you're calling it promising and it's preliminary findings, what kind of application can be made in the classroom based on what you've learned? Right. And it's not just based on this study, but it's also based on some of those other um, really well done studies in the K through two space uh, that we found in those, you know, of those nine studies that had content rich ELA approaches, there was a few other ones that were very, um, that were that met the What Works Clearinghouse standards uh, of uh, reporting. Um, and, um, you know, uh, from those studies, uh, some of them, you know, were done by um, Carol Connor and colleagues, um, Jimmy Kim and colleagues, um, Susan Newman and colleagues, um, and uh, Battalion Romance. Um, but those studies really... Uh, had some similarities that we actually pull out in our article and talk about. Um, and some of those um, were um, things like how they sequenced content knowledge and sim- systematically taught students increasingly complex ideas, learning from previous sessions. Hmm. Um, and they also um, all involved um, some, some form of writing, I believe, that all, a lot of them involved writing, uh, writing about uh, the knowledge that you're learning, and that certainly is a part of CKLA as well. Um, they, that idea that vocabulary was selected um, systematically and, and thinking with not only in keeping with words that kind of tier two words that children might, you know, need to know and have high mileage, the more general content general words, but also content specific words to help them learn the content. Um, they, and in all cases, students were involved in reading, writing, discussion, and hands-on activities for learning the content in a cumulative way. Hmm. So there are similarities among studies that are doing this that I think need to be looked at. And um, this idea, I think that the idea that the, the using the interactive read aloud as a vehicle is v- built on a very solid, um, much bigger pot of literature. 
um, in this area. And so, um, you know, even though the, the research in ELA, content-rich ELA instruction is promising and growing, um, it's based on research that is, uh, has been accumulating over time around interactive read-alouds. Yeah, that's helpful. And I know you, like you said, you've outlined a lot of this uh, research in your article itself, and we'll be sure to point listeners in our show notes to where they can find that article so they can dig in a little bit for themselves. So we appreciate you reviewing it. Um, so in closing, as we sort of bring things full circle here, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a, one or two things you'd like them to take away, maybe read more about, think more about, anything, any advice? I think some of the things that bubble to the, 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 you know, to the surface for me is the idea of being very intentional throughout our day in building children's knowledge. So when we are choosing a book to read aloud, why are we doing that? And, and make sure that understandings about children's background knowledge factor into it. Not only do they have the background knowledge to understand something, but rather can what I'm reading aloud to them build the background knowledge? I also think that um, something that I think sometimes gets confused is in kindergarten settings, for example, sometimes I see read alouds that are really very simple and are not syntactically complex. And so I think that sometimes there is a confusion between reading books to children, what they, what they are able to read versus what might be more syntactically complex for them and beyond their reading level. So I think um, another thing that um, I think about is making sure to read aloud books that are um, a couple of grade levels about, above where they're reading right now so that they will be able to engage with the rich academic language. Because if you don't read it aloud to them, where are they going to get it from? Right. Right. Well, I do know one thing in just seeing children interact with content, particularly our youngest learners, it's motivating to right. them. They love being scientists and historians. Right. And I think that building on that motivation um, and that excitement from children is, is, is what we need to do. And just acknowledge and, and realize that... Um, you know, it's not a, it's not the fault of the teacher that instruction has been siloed in the way that it has, Yeah. you know, and I think, um, just raising the awareness, uh, that it doesn't take away anything from your reading instruction to also make it content rich. Hmm. That's beautiful. Well, we appreciate you being on this episode and appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, so stay in contact and <laughs> we will be sure to link our listeners and show notes to resources that will help them also explore. Thank you for having me, Susan. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading, the Community and visit Amplify.com to check out all our free literacy events and webinars. Until next time, keep the hope, take action, and stay in touch.